welcome to You Here, Big Girls. I'm Mom Taku. This episode will be focusing on New York Times bestseller Rainbow Rowell's Any Way the Wind Blows, which was released on July 6, 2021. My co-host Luna is sitting this one out since the books we're discussing are not ones that she's read. But I am joined by two people who I'm very excited to have. The first is someone who will be familiar to our listeners. She's been on the podcast many times. Coffee Life lives in Japan, reports on events and happenings there, and is one of my favorite people to have as guest on the podcast, and the person I've been geeking out with most about this series. Coffee, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to join in, and I'm excited. My second guest is someone that I've known since, I think, 2014. It's a fandom writer who I keep running into, first in the Attack on Titan fandom and then in Yuri on Ice. So when they started writing fic for this series, I'd read the books, but I'd not really explored the fandom at all until you popped up in my AO3 notifications earlier this year. Welcome, still mad about Petra. Is it okay to call you mad? Yeah, that's perfect. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mom. We should probably start with an introduction to the series that we're going to be talking about. And Mad, since you're the writer here, I'm going to put you on the spot. For anyone listening who's not familiar with the books, how would you describe them? Uh, I actually recently had to describe the books to coworkers the other day because I had the podcast one. I usually frame the whole series as obviously young adult, which is a genre I don't read typically. But I think Rainbow Rouse Simon's No Trilogy is really interesting because it's sort of in conversation with and very self-aware of being part of this young adult um, chosen one narrative, which we'll get into through the podcast, that I considered a critique of the genre. It is, you know, it hits all the high points like of romance, of destiny, of battles of free will. You know, you have your heroes, your villains, and then it it just sketches all of that. Um, So I think it's a really interesting sort of metafiction on that kind of narrative. At one point, it was Harry Potter satire. At one point, it was only existing as an idea that people were running away with because that's sort of what it was created to do. It's about fandom. It's about fan fiction. It's about fiction itself. I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good introduction. I think it's a great introduction. The fan fiction angle is what I really want to um, talk about. Because I do think it's so interesting that this book was kind of born in fan fiction and was made for fan fiction. Um, I guess I'll start with a trigger warning here. Anyway, The Wind Blows, the entire uh, Simon So series is a YA book, as Mad mentioned. My goal is to keep the conversation close to that, try to be operative, but the book does involve sexuality, trauma, intimacy, cults, uh, things that you would expect from books involving vampires and demons and monsters. So if that's not to your liking, maybe don't listen. If you are listening on YouTube or have access to that, we will have detailed timestamps. You can check those if you want to just pick and choose which segments you listen to. So my opening question for you guys is, how did you find the series? And Mad, you've already answered this, but I wanted to know, are you normally a fan of YA literature? So Coffee, what about you? How did you find the series? Oh, it's like kind of an interesting story. So all throughout these quarantine times, I've been reading a lot of horror. And it got to the point where I wanted to do something different because it's just been going on for such a long time. And I'm like, I want something comforting. And I was thinking back on books that I used to find comforting. And I, I was thinking about Harry Potter, but like, 
I can't enjoy it anymore because the author is a horrible person. So I'm like, oh, and I, I was like, I saw somebody on Twitter mentioning like alternative alternatives to that, right? And I'm like, okay, what what what's out there? Let's check. Let's try something different. And I usually don't read YA. I think I read The Hunger Games. That's YA. But other than that, not really. I loved the author's writing style. I loved the deconstruction of all these tropes, the chosen one, and like everything that goes along with that. And then I, I right away, um, because I, I read it fairly recently, picked up Wayward Son. And I love that too. I love, I love her dialogue. <laughs> I love the characters. I love the unexpected route that she took with the sequels, right? Because she could have just continued more of the same. She went in a completely different direction. And so I didn't have to wait that long for Anyway, The Wind Blows. And that was the first one that I could pre-order and kind of follow the excitement and everything and fangirl over with you. So, yeah. I hope you check out other books by Rainbow Rowell because I, I love Rainbow Rowell, like all of them. I know it's unusual for you to be digging into this genre, but all of her books are just so readable and kind of have that human insight that I enjoy. I, I actually did read Fangirl, mm -hmm. but I had a lot of uh, issues with that book because it's a little too close to home with the anxiety. But other than that, it was fun. So what about you, Mad? How did you find the series? Probably like coffee. I in quarantine, kind of had to turn to books for something to do. Uh, Mom, you probably saw that on my AO3, the like three or four year gap in any of my writing. Mm -hmm. So I, basically, I became an adult and a workaholic and didn't look at fandom or fiction of that level or Tumblr or anything for three to four years. Quarantine hit. I work in the restaurant industry, so I didn't have a job. So I just started blazing through books with like online uh, library catalogs and I you know I was reading like Herman Hess and whatever like big kid stuff I could find and then I needed a break from that sort of contemplation so I googled like queer literature or something like and so I read like in other worlds and then like the next book on the list was carry on so I read carry on and I liked it I really didn't think anything of carry on that would like interest me but it was like, oh, there's a sequel. I liked it enough. I'm bored as heck. So I read Wayward Son, and I liked that one a lot more, which a lot of people didn't. But for me, I treat the genre a little bit more horror, a little bit more grotesque than a lot of the initial readers, which you can see reflected in the writing that I do for it. And I thought Wayward Son was really savvy. It had that ugly emotional complexity that I like. And uh, for me, I guess I have always loved YA and fantasy, and I honestly love every genre book. But one thing I've done as a parent is like read what my kids read, because I think talking about books is a lot of fun. In the case of the Simon Snow series, it was literally a matter of my daughter sliding it to me and saying, Mom, read. But I was already familiar with Rainbow Rowell as an author because my kid sister left a copy of Attachments at my house, which I never returned. It's on my bookshelf when I realized that there were more by this author, I was very happy to consume all of them. And I became a huge fan of Rainbow Rowell as a person when I heard an interview with her on the Fansplaining podcast, which just a plug for that one, it's my favorite podcast about fandom for fandom. And Rainbow's, I don't want to say her story 
mirrored my own, but because by no means am I, you know, anything like that. But she's somebody who found fandom very late in life. And her relationship with fandom is very complicated. And coming into fandom as I did as an adult was such an eye-opening and overwhelming and life-changing experience that I appreciated that. Kind of like on Rainbow herself, and I guess maybe a, like adult or later life, like fandom engagement. And as a creator, I am constantly astounded that she has any relationship with like the fandom. Because, like, when I see some of the, like, I think we constantly in this age, like, see the 1% of fandom kind of, like, go after creators. Like, you saw that with the Loki series and stuff. Or, um, I'm trying to think of other stuff. Like, a chaos was supernatural. Like, anything. To be creators, to be so vulnerable. And I, like, I'm always, like, Rainbow, how are you still, I don't know, on Tumblr? What are you doing? It's like when you love an author, you fear for them, too. You want to just wrap them up in <laughs> bubble wrap and you know, no touchy, everybody stay away. Let's just consume their thoughts without responding because the 1% is horrible. But I, I do follow Rainbow both on Twitter and Tumblr. I haven't seen the horrible. I'm sure the horrible is there. I think anyone who's been on Tumblr and Twitter, especially sharing ideas or thoughts or being vulnerable has experienced the horrors of the 1%. So I know we all love the books. Uh, but before we get in the details, I thought it'd be fun to start off with just one thing you loved about it, one thing that surprised you, and if there was anything you were maybe less enthused about. And we'll touch on those as we get into the conversation. So again, Coffee, why don't you go first? One thing you loved, one thing that surprised you, and something maybe you were less than enthused about. Uh, oh my gosh. Okay. I, lo I love everything about it. Um, I love the characters. Um, my favorite character is Baz. I love the 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 rereadability. So I don't know if you had this experience, but I've heard other people have had a similar experience where you read the book the first time, right? Like let's say Carry On, and a lot of people just reread it directly after reading it the first time. Did you have that experience? I did. I read it twice, and then I read it again. Uh huh. Before uh, in the in the days leading up to Anyway, the Wind Blows. Yeah, that was the same for me. Like I finished it and then like a day passed and I was like, I want to read it again. <laughs> I read it again and then another week passed and I read it again. And I have never had that experience before. With novels, usually I'll read it once, maybe twice, and then I'm I'm done with it. But I can't stop picking up these books. Like same with Wayward Son and Anyway, The Wind Blows. I, well, we were recording the podcast, so we had to kind of refresh, but I think I would have read it again anyway. You know, so the rereadability is really, really high. I love her dialogue. I love the character dialogue and I love the sense of humor. And then something that surprised you? I was surprised, especially with the second and the third book of how she takes something like a road trip or like an ending uh, to a trilogy, right? And she approaches it in an unexpected way. I would agree with that. And was there anything that you weren't crazy about? Anything that, you know, just didn't sit with you? The only thing that I wasn't like super, super crazy about was that everybody ends up paired up in a relationship at the end. But other than that, 
I was pretty happy with it. What about you, Matt? Something you loved? It can be a moment or a general thing, something that surprised you, something you weren't crazy about. I almost want to say the thing that I loved the most was also the thing that surprised me, which was kind of how ugly the characters can be, or they weren't perfect. I'm really delighted by like Simon's rage and his brutality and kind of his grotesque nature. Same way with like Baz's vampirism. I like that <laughs> Penny is sometimes so unbearable. Like I love her, mm-hmm. but like they all had solid flaws and solid strengths. And I guess like more surprised with, with the things that anyway, the wind blow did with um kind of monstrosity, which I had been vying for since I read them. And then I felt really validated by my interpretation of the text, like being reflected with what the author ended up doing. And then kind of what Coffee said towards like, I, I love all the characters. Um, I was a little bit underwhelmed. I mean, like with, Agatha and Eve and then like okay I love Shepard and Penny being together but their storyline was so like surface level but it was also adorable and funny but it it didn't get as deep or as like gritty as like I like but that's my preference versus you know anything else I'm just like a little little monster nasty machine I think <laughs> they were so cute though <laughs> So I think for me, the thing I love is also what surprised me. I remember, and we'll read this quote later, Rainbow last August mentioned the book would be about recovering from trauma, the effects of trauma. And I think what I loved and what also surprised me was how much of that happened while they were together, like in bed or having quiet moments or you know, the breakup at chapter 13 and they're back together shortly thereafter and the rest of it, like they're dealing with it together. And that was just so incredibly satisfying. Uh, The one thing I wasn't crazy about was, I think, Agatha's return to the magical world. I really loved how she got away from it all, got away from, like, she ran away like like she assumed Lucy did, but then she came back, and now she's, like, part of the system or supporting it in her way, which I don't hate it. I read a meta about it. I think it was actually yours, Mad, so maybe we will get into that later, too. I would love to, actually. Something else I wanted to ask you guys about was your involvement in fandom. Now, in fandom, I've I've really not been active in this one. I've I've read the fix. I've talked with Coffee. Uh, Coffee, have you have you been heavily invested in the fandom, or what's been your involvement? I've been exploring it, but not participating. I think after Shingeki ended, and everything just became awful at the end. I have a little trauma from fandom but it 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 seems like a really positive fandom and i think this story does lend itself to you know fan participation fan fiction and uh different illustrations and because the author is so interactive with the different types of fans i i think the fandom itself is really interesting but other than baking some scones and <laughs> putting that on Tumblr, I am staying away from any fandoms right now. Yeah, I, I'm like you. So I I was not in the fandom. When I saw Mad writing fic, I'm like, I'm going to read a fic. And with the excitement of the upcoming book, I've, I think I've followed you, Mad, for like 10 years now or whatever. So um, you know, it was literally just whatever you were feeding me. 
And I agree, coffee, same thing. Like I am just traumatized <laughs> from the Shingeki no Kyojin fandom. And it's like, I don't want fandom ruining this for me. Uh-huh. But from what I've seen, I mean, there's so much, I, it makes me sad that I wasn't in it. What about you, Mad? You seem like you actually have been in the fandom. I think I have a lot of the same sort of like hesitations with fandom that you guys have, but I also have zero impulse control. So I just stick my face into <laughs> it. I came into the Simon Snow fandom sort of like whiplash because I kind of got fed up with The Witcher. <laughs> and I will say the fandom, I mean, what the first book came out in 2015. Um, I think it has like, it's small. It has a lot of really devoted creatives that are doing a lot to kind of spread the good word of Simon Snow. I've noticed you follow a lot of fandom. You reblog the meta. You write meta. I assume you're in a Discord. What I'm was... not. I Oh. I have a lot of hesitations with fandom. So, like, I have a couple of good friends that I have made that I adore. For the most part, though, like, I get overwhelmed and kind of, like, hit a wall when I have too many opinions or voices, like, engaging, which is what Discord did. And... I actually think Discord is destructive to fandom Mm. as a whole because I think it creates echo chambers and insulates um, conversations and it gets a little weird. Just in general, I'm not really in Discord. Do you have any awareness of what the fandom was like in anticipation of the book and once it was released? Because it seems to me like people have been very excited and happy. And I think I wanted to talk to you mostly, Mad, because... As a fandom writer, as somebody who's like contributed to the fandom, who's kind of filled in the gaps as we were waiting for the new books, I've noticed that the fandom community got a lot right. The first fic I read in the fandom was yours, A Light from Miles Away, which you wrote in January of 2021. I think I told you this in a comment, like your fic made me care about Shepard. I barely remembered Shepard from Wayward Son because my entire focus was like, fix this. Simon is in trouble. Fix this. Um, So he was just kind of a fun little side character. And you and the other fic writers, I've noticed, took him and just really worked with him. You gave him a name, a personality, a motivation. And I I consider that now like a head start on loving him. Reading fan fiction, my experience with the fan fiction community is I am just gobsmacked at how much they got right. Like there are lines from basic Bathsheba's fix back, you know, three years ago that just feel like they were, they, you could just drop them right into any way the wind blows and they would work. But one thing that, that people didn't get right, and I noticed this with you and, and with other writers, is that many writers gave a reason for why Shepard was cursed. The one I saw most commonly was that he or a loved one was like sick and dying and a deal with the devil was better than the eventuality that he was expecting. Um, But in canon, of course, he was cursed because he's just an idiot with absolutely no sense of reason or chill. And I guess I'm just going to toss this to you, Mad. What's it like writing for a series that's not complete? How do you feel about the things that you guys got wrong? And what was that like for you? I'm pretty public about it. I actually don't read a lot of fan fiction. Predominantly, like, if I'm writing for a fandom, I try not to read fan fiction because I don't want to mix characterization too much between what somebody's doing and what I'm trying to do, just for the sake of, like, tonal shifts in a piece of writing. If you follow Captain Hyphen Aurelius, she made the, like, Simon Snow wiki lore page and does a lot of 
tracking of the development of fandom. They're a really great resource. She's the one who recommended me a couple of writers that I really like, but for the most part, I I stay out of fandom um, for the sake of sanity. But with Shepard and the Curse, I didn't actually really think it was a deal with the devil for the sake of like curing anything or that. I used that for my fic as like, I did it for reasons also because I'm like still processing a friend's death. But within the narration or within the canon itself, him coming into this demon curse kind of because of curiosity or because of his love and relationship to magic, I think foils really well and isn't as surprising as maybe it first seemed. Like, it's kind of like a joke, but as Shepard talks throughout any the way the wind blows and kind of has that engagement with Penny, like, about why he kind of can't help himself. And, like, he seemed pretty okay with it. Like, even as he was scared, he wasn't, like... I don't know if he would say he wouldn't do it again. Because, like, he did something incredible and amazing and powerful, even if it had repercussions, which he's sort of the the normal foil for Simon. Did you get any sense of how fandom was handling the release? I feel like the fan fiction writers must have been taking a victory lap. Like, they must have been so happy. Yeah, there's definitely a sect of people. And, like, I have a very limited engagement with the fandom at large. I mean, there's tons of people that are being creatives for the series. So for, like, my friends and I, our narratives very closely fit any way the wind blows with themes and relationship stuff. A lot of people were very seemingly nervous for any way wind blows and very much like snowbats are super going to break up and like, oh no, what's going to happen? But like, I think it's okay. I think people are very happy with the amount of like love and affection and support that the characters showed each other. What about you, Coffee? Have you, did you read much fic in the fandom before the book release? Yeah, I tried to stick to really light short stories. I try not to read too much about like what comes after the story because I I, I kind of want to read like, you know, like the real story. And I thought it was really interesting, like uh, Mad said, that the fandom seemed so nervous about the last book. And Rainbow, I, you know, like she, she has a lot of interaction with her fans and, and she, I think for the most part, was very reassuring and I don't think she would end it I haven't read her other books so I don't know maybe there's a reason why everyone was so nervous but I I I didn't ever get the feeling that she would end it in a really awful way you know what I mean yeah I didn't get the nerves either and I think Rainbow even tweeted one time like do y'all not get a trilogy like the middle book is supposed to be uh-huh. The traumatic one. And I, I had no worries either. I was very confident that this was going to end in the most satisfying way possible. I haven't felt this satisfied with a piece of media in a very long time. It actually feels a little <laughs> strange being like, wow, I'm satisfied. A hundred percent. I have I have a question. <laughs> so I think Matt said earlier, and I, I think you also feel the same way. I think all three of us really enjoyed Wayward Son. And I was really mm-hmm. surprised that a lot of the fandom didn't like it. I was actually quite shocked by that. Yeah, I was too. Because as you know, I blame Matt. I blame you for everything. Like starting January of this year, I read a fic and thought, oh, there is a fic community. There is an online community. I must go see it. And, you know, just started kind of like reading back through the history of the fandom. And I I was struck by that too. Like people just lost their love. I don't want to 
say that's not okay because losing your love is fine. But I wonder if it's if it's just a tiny percentage of people that didn't like maybe very vocal or something. Maybe. I felt like Wayward Son is the is better in many ways than the first book. You you keep seeing it too, right? People are like, "Oh, Wayward Son didn't matter. Wayward Son, you know, has no purpose in the story." I'm like, dude. It ties back so much to Wayward Son, like even Smith and Lamb, like kind of having this like mentor role. Oh, yeah. Like there's so many tiebacks to Wayward Son. They're like, well, it introduced Shep and that's it. And I'm like, I don't think so. That's one thing that I think we've all agreed on is that Wayward Son was so good. I, I loved it. Like I read it and I was like, man, I like it more. Like I like I feel like I reread Carry On more, but I felt like Wayward Son is the better book. And there's so many humor moments. Like the the whole dialogue about the fucking unicorn frappuccino. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh my god. I love Does it. Does it taste like lavender? <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. And the humor in that book is so good. Like I know, I know, yes, there's heartbreaking moments, but the humor is so spot on in that book. Agreed. I'll just say that like you guys, this is one of the first one of the few times that I have felt so much love and like peace with a piece of media. The last time I felt this good was season four of Castlevania. Did you watch that? Oh my god. I love it. So good. Um <laughs> Where I think, yes, there's always a little bit of open-ended bits, but, like, everybody's story got wrapped up satisfyingly, or, like, there was a really good message, or it didn't fall into this, like, current trend of, like, grinor, gritty poopiness. Um, So, yeah, I just think it's a really solid series with a great ending, and, like, I think that's such a rare gift. I still need to watch that one. I know Luna's working on a Castlevania podcast. I've listened to a bit, but I don't want to listen to too much because of spoilers. So I want to talk more about Simon and Baz, obviously. And I think most of our conversation will kind of like focus on Simon and his relationship with the things in the book, since he is very much the main character. But I was looking back through Twitter and I found a quote from Rainbow Rowell from almost a year ago, August 25th, 2020 where I think she's reassuring the fandom about what this book is going to be about. Also, you know, giving us insight into it. And I'm going to read this quote. And then I just want to know from you guys how that quote hits you now. So the quote is this. It says, Any Way the Wind Blows is a book about intimacy and how trauma affects our ability to let people be close to us. How we can develop emotional autoimmune disorders, where our brains attack everything that gets close to us, even the good stuff, and how trauma really only trains you for more trauma. So it's a book about physical and emotional intimacy and feeling broken and wondering what's possible for you and what you should settle for and whether broken people ever get to feel fixed or whether fixed is as big a lie as broken. So a year ago, we we knew those broad emotional strokes of the story but not what that journey would look like. So as I read that now, Coffee, how does that hit you? I think that she understands people very, very well, almost in a scary sort of way. I'm like, how does she, because I, I don't, I don't know her, her, her personal story. I don't know anything about her life, but she understands people's emotions so well and from from a a personal place that that whole 
a quote about how like your brain, like trauma only really trains you for more trauma and how you attack everything that gets close to you. That is so, that is like way too close to home, that description. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, it's, it's just very, the way she understands people is, is, is a little, a little scary. <laughs> I think the way she explored the story surprised me, the journey that the, the characters take and how they have to work to communicate with each other. I, I think that had to be done, right? And she, oh, yeah. she was setting that up. With the second book as well, You, I, I didn't expect it to go the places it went to. But I'm really like, I, I think the second book really cemented that she understood that part about people, that people don't just have a happy ending because the story is over. And how you have to, especially if you suffered trauma, you have to really work to keep going and and that that quote about fixed being as big a lie as broken i think that also hits very close to home i think for me what what got me about that quote was dealing with people who have emotional autoimmune disorders i feel like i'm oftentimes surrounded by people with those where their instinct is to want to attack because they're afraid and pushing people away because they're afraid and reading Baz, especially having to deal with somebody who is just so completely traumatized. They're both traumatized. Simon's traumatized. Baz is traumatized. But Baz at least understands love. He's had love. I definitely am more in the role of Baz where that constant dance of trying to deal with people, you know, even it's, this is stupid, but even like on Tumblr, I automatically assume everybody in my inbox is coming to me from a place of trauma. And it makes it a lot easier, I think, for me emotionally to like deal with the ugliness I see in fandom, because I don't think most people are ugly. I think most people are just angry and scared, and I can relate to that. So watching Baz play in that game, doing that dance, it just, it, it really affected me. I, I took a lot, a lot of, again, a lot of comfort from that. And, you know, I think the good thing about a book is when it helps you be more aware about yourself and others. And I definitely got that. If we want to touch on Baz specifically, I mean, honestly, he enters a borderline caretaker role. I mean, he and Penny both do with Simon. Looking at the way that Carry On ended, and this was kind of the thing that I think helped Rainbow stand out as a writer, and part of the reason why I say that she's in, like critiquing the genre is like Simon's very last like narrative in Carry On is that he feels like a house after a fire, and my biggest like you know, my head's against the wall with this is the way that people still treated carry on as like a very fluffy narrative and like something kind of goopy sweet when I was like, this is like a horror story. Like, this is very sad to me. Like your hero, he ends basically on his knees and he knows it. And like, even though some things you're looking up, hugging a kiss isn't going to make it better. And that's what made Wayward Son so good because Rainbow dug into that. I think I have a post a long time ago about, like, yes, Simon's struggling, but for Baz, especially, like, as a as a queer man, like, he says it in any way the wind blows that, like, he's like, yes, I'll take it slash you slash this relationship. I thought it'd be 
married to a girl and sneaking out to sleep with strangers and drink their pets. And, like, he has such a dejective, low standard and expectation of what his life was going to be and the love he'd be able to receive that even as someone as damaged as Simon or as a relationship as codependent and unhealthy, I mean, it works for them, but, like, all of us in real life would be like, y'all. Um, it's amazing and, like, compelling. It's not good, but it's compelling. Yeah. <laughs> it compels me. I think that's why, like, I would, I was looking at, like, my favorite quote from the book, and I settled in on something from Chapter 41 that says, I'm hard to hurt. You said so yourself. And Simon replies with, no, I said you were hard to kill. And I just really love that acknowledgement on Simon's part that Daz had been hurt as well, because the focus is always on Simon. And I love that little moment where where Simon had that emotional awareness, I guess. So I really love that. I want to start with something early in the book uh, from chapter 12, uh, a quote that kind of stuck out to me that I, I thought set the tone for a lot of what comes. Simon... His whole idea is that he wants to go back to who he was before the mage found him when he was just a kid in a care home. And he says at that point, I don't know who I am. I'm nothing at that moment. I'm between Simons. I don't even have a sofa. When the book gets to the main plot, it's, and I think woven throughout it, is this whole chosen one narrative. Baz says something later in the book in chapter 56. It's like Simon wants someone else to be the chosen one. He wants it to be someone like Smith Smith Richard, someone who will wear the crown more comfortably than he did. So did he love being the chosen one or did he just miss having a purpose? I would say he missed having a purpose. And if we want to go back to the quote in chapter 12 where he's, I don't know who I am. I'm nothing at the moment between Simon and the sofa. Like Simon, what's he, he gets this inheritance from the mage and he's like, this money will be my fresh start. And he literally doesn't even have a sofa, a.k.a. he doesn't have a place to crash. Like, it's nothingness because it's new and not because it's nothing because it means nothing. And if you look at Simon in this relationship with nothing, like, that's what, you know, the humdrum was. It was nothing. It was something that needed filled. It was something that didn't have magic. But it also, it was bottomless hunger. And I think throughout this text, Simon's finally getting fed with the things he needs, like <laughs> like cake and basic love and care and a sense of self and something that he's creating in his own image versus, you know, everybody telling him his destiny or narrative or, as Smith Smith Richard says in the uh, Whitechapel confrontation, when he's talking about him, Mistress Bunce, where he, he's like, she'll stay in the narrative. There's this whole idea of us kind of stepping off the page or being written out the text to like basses about Penny, like how many history books will she land herself in? Like Simon doesn't even feel like he has a place in the pages anymore, but sometimes that's a good thing to, you know, re- write your own narrative. I just love how though he isn't the chosen one anymore, but the minute Daphne's in trouble, there's like no hesitation. It's Baz, it's your stepmom. Of course I'm gonna. <laughs> Simon's you know, Daz is like, you said you didn't want to be involved anymore. But yeah, it's your stepmom. And just anytime, Whitechapel, anytime there's a hero's role to be filled, I don't think that that's because he's been trained to be the good little soldier. That's just Simon. If there's somebody, yes. yeah, uh-huh. he's just, he's going to be the hero. That's he, he, that is who he is. It's not going back to who he was before the mage found him, because even before the mage found him, 
he was always going to be a hero. Mm -hmm. Something else I thought that was um, real profound, and I think, uh, Mad, you made a, a little meme about it, the butterfly meme, you know, is this? <laughs> is this what people do? Is this what people do? Because um, I, I think what Anyway the Wind Blows really helped me to appreciate about Simon, because I think a lot of time I am just reading him as a hero, um, but as an actual character, is just that he has literally no idea. Like there is, there has been, until he met Penny, no love, no place of love. Uh, no idea of what normal tenderness is. Nobody has ever been kind to him. And I would guess, what, for the first 12 years of your life to have absolutely no kindness, no tenderness in your life. So his complete confusion over things that anybody who's had a mother's love or any or any love, any any adult figure or otherwise that cares about you is just so baffling to him. Like, wait a minute, is this what people do? Um, I really loved your meme about that. It made me laugh. But also, it's just so incredibly tragic that he has no idea what normal people do, how how feelings happen. Is that manifested in that he wants to be loved less kindly? I think that you're right that it 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 it's it, it does suit his character, but I, I think it's because that's what's comfortable for him and what he knows. Easier to accept love when it hurts a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, but like seriously, yeah. Yeah, I think for, you know, using Rainbow's quote as sort of the parameters that Simon's dealing with of like pushing away like his emotional autoimmune. And what he says with Baz is like he didn't even want to try because he was already anticipating it being over or ruined. And like he's constantly just kind of even when he's not staring down the barrel of a gun, he's he basically like lives his life like that. And with Simon, he with his he has ongoing. I wouldn't even say it's PTSD. He has ongoing trauma, and he's routinely in these situations that he enters. He's in a constant state of hypervigilance and like adrenaline spikes. Like that's just his whole life. So on a more like physiological level, <laughs> like gentleness like that what is it called whispering on my skin like that can be very very unnerving and like if he's having any level of sensory stuff like i have to imagine it it itches it feels like you're going to climb out of your skin which you know if you want to look at the way magic made him feel like a bubble bursting or like the way he was always going off or smoking his whole body and his whole life has always been on these sort of like frayed and fraught edges of his own humanity like I think even now, like, it wasn't until the end of Any Way the Wind Blows we start seeing him enter some level of physical comfort with himself. Because, you know, in the same vein, the same moment he's, like, losing magic, he has extra body parts that are, they wouldn't respond to magic, likely. And they'd probably leave lasting nerve damage and scarring, which is, you know, what was confirmed. I think it hurts to be, like, the same way we see characters that are, like, scarred or have... Um, sort of any sort of like physical deviation like it's unnerving to be touched where we're so used to not being touched um, and like serious props to Penny from Carry On because she has that moment kind of towards the beginning of the book where she's like I lean against him to touch him just so he knows I'm not scared of him and like because she knows that he's never been touched and he reacts with her like 
they're playful together. But like, you know, one of their early intimate moments when she's on Baz's bed, he reaches over and pinches her. And like, not to be mean, but like, he's such like a, like an unruly, tumbly little boy that's like, that's his way of expressing himself is kind of through the barrier of some, even like playful, innocent forms of violence or pain, just like, when has anybody like really held him prior to Baz? Like, that's just, and it's unnerving to be intimate um, in that way. In an early example in the book, when they were intimate, one of their first attempts at intimacy, it was honestly like, it was just what you were saying. It was just kind of like raw and ugly and ill-managed. It was biting and Simon wanting to consume him and talking about like, even then it wouldn't be enough if he was to, you know, to bleed him dry and just not knowing how to handle any sense of, of, of intimacy and emotion without it just consuming him. It reminded me of like, again, filling that humdrum. That humdrum was so empty that he had to just keep pouring into it. And it felt like that with Baz, he wanted to keep pulling from him. And it was just, I was so uncomfortable reading it. Like I just, the panic attack, the, the, the words he was using and, you know, and knowing later in the book that it was so absolutely not what Baz needed. How did you feel reading that scene? When I read it, I was like, howling and screaming like a deranged dog at the moon because it's like everything I've ever wanted (laughs) (laughs) but I also like love the ugliest stuff that we can get from each other but Ewan for the audiobook when he narrates it it's a lot more horrific it is such a terrible like gut-wrenching scene because you know we do see that it's a total disconnect but it's also it's so desperate and there's a lot of ways that you could like break down what's happening in that scene and the like meta so we you know that are gonna keep arriving. I know that there's some in the works from some people. When I listen to the audiobook rehash of it, obviously it's slower than when I read because I read super fast. And it was more jarring than I was expecting to have it near. I listened to like ten times back to back, but like Simon is like truly unhinged but he's going through so much and he doesn't have the the means to express it i it makes me really want to read the audio or hit listen to the audiobook now what about what about you coffee what did you did you have any thoughts about their first (laughs) no i agree with both of you i i appreciate the the rawness of it I, i the the desperation i think is is hard to you know, like, like, like Mad said, the audio is the audiobook is so, so good the way it's narrated. And it's, it's hard to listen to, but it's, it's, uh, this is going to sound so weird, but it's like such a good read. You can really feel the emotion of that there's like a desperation and a fear there and like not being able to hold on to what he wants to have and maybe not knowing what he wants to have and i think also you know going back to the physicality i think um that is the only way that he can know that it's a a real a real thing that the physicality is i feel like necessary for him because he needs to know that it's real and that he can hold on to something. But it was it was very difficult uh, to read in many ways. 
I'm glad it wasn't just me that was unnerved by it. And I'm I'm laughing a little mad because it's like what you wanted. Like you wanted this. <laughs> and I'm always like, no, no, just love each other. And you're like, make it ugly. <laughs> but no, it should, but she, but but he's right. It no, should be right. it should it's be right. ugly. Yeah. That's but that's what makes it say it hurts so good, you know. Mm-hmm. It it should it should be, you know. So it towards the end of the intimacy. Simon, I don't think Simon ever figured out what he wanted, but instead he centered in on loving Baz the way Baz needed to be loved. It became his mission. Like he's always been a very good soldier. He's always been very good at following orders. I don't know if you guys felt like this, but I felt like for him, it's like he still has to figure it out. So for now, he's going to focus on loving Baz the way Baz needs to be loved. And I didn't mind that. Is that how you interpreted it? I, I liked it. I, that was the way he was able to frame it for himself in a way that he could, you know, live with, right? Like he's like, this, I, that's what he understood, right? And that's mm-hmm. what he's good at. And that's how he is going to approach it, how he's decided that he's going to approach it. But his needs and wants aren't off the table. And I think no, it's that's not. highlighted but, yeah. in his eagerness for Baz to bite him. He is able to verbalize that that's something that he just finds really sexy. And I had to laugh at like their hunting scenes because what was the one line where Simon kills the rat and holds it out to him like a red rose? Like this is romance for them, killing things, <laughs> Baz drinking blood messily at times, and uh, Simon just wanting to be one of those rats, you know? It was funny, but at the same time, like, oh, this, you know, this is what Simon wants. This is what he, he likes this. And Baz better get used to him liking it because, you know, it's a two-way street. There's been a lot of meta about Simon and Baz loving each other's monster parts and like the wings and tail and fangs being metaphors for queerness, like monstrosity and queerness goes hand in hand. And so this is their way of kind of it being an extension of how they love each other physically love each other as these two queer men and i found backtracking really quickly to simon letting baz kind of drive their intimate moments reminds me kind of how simon doesn't really label himself he just knows that he wants baz and so it's sort of like he kind of gives everything to baz but like that's what satisfies him and i think that's actually a really normal way to love for a lot of people for the blood stuff, I mean, so if we look at that first attempt at intimacy when Simon says that if I were you and you were me, I'd drain you dry. Like, I think Simon wants Bass to consume him, not just because it's like hot to Simon, but if Bass drinks from him and kind of gets, you know, life from him and gets fool from Simon, it's what Simon wants to do with Bass. Like, he, he wants them to have this sort of like, mutual consumption and devouring because that's how Simon processes like like swallowing and eating and putting stuff in his mouth and you know satisfying his hunger it made me think about his um his relationship with Penny is based on no lies they're just you, you don't keep secrets from each other and his relationship with Baz it's very much all or nothing he wants all of Baz he wants every bit of him and there can't be any part that's off limits as the way Simon sees things. And I think that's a lot of that is just because Simon is just such a, I don't want to use the word wholesome and pure, but just such, he's just so honest and basic and primal, maybe? I would say primal. I think, I mean, if you take the, 
dragon rot with Simon, he's very possessive of Penny and Bass. Like, he wants the whole kit caboodle with them. Like, every aspect of them. They're good, they're bad. The monster of them, the patronizing of them. And inevitably, he has to also take them as magicians as well. I really liked that idea of, of the dragon aspect of his personality. How literally do you take that? I know that in Wayward Son, the dragon that they met recognized him as one of hers. So I took that as confirmation that he actually has dragon, like is is not just a guy with wings and a tail, but is part dragon. Is that the how you all interpreted that? That's how I interpret it. And I have like my like rampant theories. What about you, Coffee? I feel the same way. And I, I, I think we were probably towards the end going to talk about if she ever decides in the future to continue with the story. I think, I think that would probably be explored, right? Because even from the first book, there's so much about dragons. I wonder if it's connected to him killing that first dragon in the first book right and that's like what the connection is but like over and over and over again like rereading it like the bedroom that he stays in in baz's house has a dragon over it the the dragon conference confrontation where they share magic the first time and wayward son when they meet the dragon and she recognizes him as a dragon and again in this book they kind of like reaffirm again and again that these are dragon wings right so yeah i i I don't know. I really think that should Rainbow, I think she'll probably kind of revisit them in adult fiction. I definitely think we'll see Dragon Simon. I do think it's telling that the first thing he ever slays is a dragon and that he obliterates it. And it's said then that you only slay a dragon if you're trying to open a gate to hell and we have, you know, this demon reappear. And the way that the demon kind of leaves it like, hey, if you ever need me, (laughs) you know how to reach me. And just like the reoccurring, like the motifs and emphasis on this aspect of him. And we see over time how more ingrained the wings and tail become to his mannerisms and his habits. And oh, my kingdom for Dragon Simon. Uh, Let's go ahead and hit on that some more. So I know I had this slated in the podcast for later, but we all, I think we all unanimously agree Simon will keep the tail and the wings. Yeah. Yeah. Do we think that his life expectancy will be affected by the dragon parts? I honestly don't care about the matter of some mortality or immortality. (laughs) Okay. Like, totally weird theory time. But I think it will be. And I think he'll either have a a much, much longer lifespan or, or possible immortality, right? And I think it ties in, if she continues with, these stories, which I, I think is is quite possible. It ties in with towards the end of the book with Baz finding out about that drinking little animals like squirrels won't make you immortal. The explanation for that is that you're taking life, right? So a squirrel's life is, is pretty short and a dog's life is pretty short, but people have longer lives. So you're taking a piece of their life to expand your own life. So potentially it could put him in a situation where in order to live as long as Simon to, to kind of keep living together, he would put in the, be put in this position where he would maybe uh, kind of go along with what Simon wants for him to drink his blood. I like it. I really appreciated the, the world building about 
vampirism in both of these books or how the rules are established in, first of all, when he meets Lamb in Wayward Son and then built on now Baz's obliviousness about it, of course, but also that we did get some of those answers about the aging question. And I, I think you're right. Like, I don't know that Rainbow will explore it, but it's definitely open for the fandom writers. If Simon does have some sense of of immortality, Baz knows how to match it. If he doesn't, Baz knows how to match it. They know how to at least stay mm-hmm. together in this sense, which I thought was fantastic. One criticism I've seen from the book, and I haven't seen a lot of it, I just, I've seen it mentioned three times now, is that it didn't have enough plot or certainly not as much plot as the previous books did. Is that something that you guys agree with? This third book, it's a character-driven narrative. The plot doesn't have to be external. And I think that's a very reductive way of viewing it. Like, yeah, it's not as action-packed, but things were progressing. It was engaging. The characters changed in advance, so it had plot. Same. I feel like the way things were woven together as the story progresses in the last book, like, yes, you do have like a lot of a lot of characters doing things, you know, like their own separate things, but the way it kind of weaves together and the way the themes kind of weave together, it works. And and yeah, like like uh, Mad said, it, it's very character driven, but the plot is there. Yes, there's like the the Smith Smith what is his name? Smith Smith Richards? <laughs> Smith Smith Richards, right? Yeah, that's there, but that's to drive, I think, like these other themes that she has going, whether it's like the flawed parent figures, intimacy between characters, um, how people deal with trauma. Like there's so many other things going on that weave into the story, like, and as the story goes, as it progresses, that I think, yeah, I, I, I disagree with that criticism. Yeah, I do too. But I agree with Mad that very character driven. But when the plot did happen, it was introduced early in the story. It was about the the appearance of the new chosen ones. And of course, there was a lot of focus on Simon and his relationship with this new chosen one. And I saw a cute text post on Tumblr. It was something like, Baz telling Simon, I want you to pretend to be interested in joining a cult. And Simon nodding, (laughs) okay, I'm going to join a cult. Like, (laughs) why was Simon so eager to accept that new chosen one? And in particular, Smith Smith Richards. Like, what? why did he need so much for there to be an authentic chosen one that wasn't him? I'd like to toss that one out to you guys. Because he can fall into that he can fall into that. He doesn't have to, you know, it, 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 then for him, I think things are working as they in quotation marks should be working. Right. And it's, it's easy. And he can, he can, he can, he, he, and I think he also wants in some ways, I think he wants someone to, again, it's, it's, it all goes back to that, that kind of like that figure that you look up to. I think it ties into that as well. Yeah, it's like he needed to prove that he was a fraud. He really wants to think that his childhood was a lie, which isn't a good thing to want to believe, but he he wanted that book closed, that question answered. And if Smith Smith Richards was the authentic chosen one, then Simon was a lie. And of course, Baz won't accept that. Baz Baz feels like Simon was absolutely the chosen one. I also wondered with 
Smith Smith Richards too, why Simon was so keen on him was the promise that Smith Richards was bringing, which was to bring magic back and Simon's hope in getting his magic back. Like he wants his magic back. I don't, I know that Simon says he does want his magic back. And I think maybe to like, have some element of like, okay, I was a major, like I have this place again, or, you know, get his third hand back as he says. But I, you know, it was like Smith Smith Richards kind of was doing the opposite of what Simon ended up doing. Like Simon took magic away. Well, theoretically Smith Smith Richard was putting magic back. And like that, if, you know, Simon recasts himself as a villain or as a monster and that would make Smith Smith Richard a hero. And I think like everybody always wants her to be a hero in the narrative, even if it's not ourselves. But if you look at like the way Simon processes the loss of magic, it's kind of like he's going through grief with it. And I think to a point, you know, trying to have his magic fixed and it failing is sort of like when you finally get to go to the funeral and like properly say goodbye and have it all confirmed. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Like the stages were over. Like you can, yeah, you can close that book now and kind of like rebuild. I think he wanted it though. I think he wanted to believe that it was real. His magic or that Smith Smith Richard was the chosen Both. I think both. I think, yeah, I think both, but I also, I, I didn't want him to get his magic and I think in the long run that's better, but I also like, I hate the world of mages. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The world of mages is a really, really ugly place. Yeah. There was no hiding that. And you mentioned something, Coffee, about Baz being willing to give up his wand twice. Like, it's not worth – the world of mages is not worth it to him either. And Uh I think Penny learning that the world of mages is horribly flawed. Like, this book very much villainized the world of mages, what it did to these children. And I think that all ties back to Shep too. Shep is the is the key <laughs> because he's one of the only characters in the book, and you see that in chapter fifty four, who he is happy with who he is, and he he's like, look, even though I'm not magical, I'm connected to the magical world. I'm I'm normal, but you don't have to be magical to be connected to. Uh, to to this, you 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 know he's he's happy in who he is, and none of the almost none of the other characters are right. Like everybody's in crisis except for him, who's very firmly grounded, and he knows what who he is, and he's he's content with who he is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I think uh, th- some of the points that I loved so much about Shepard was how early in the story. Penny literally equates him to litter. Like if you touch a piece of trash, you're responsible for it. If she dropped him now, she'd be littering. And later she equates normals to like uh, plants or ants, things that are important to the ecosystem, but not like quote unquote important. You know, you see, you see this arrogance and classism and just uh, I, that's I, all going back it, and that ties into Smith Smith Richards as well because it's all going back to these flawed um, like 
like parental figures or like figures that give guidance, right? Like Penny's, it goes back to her mom and, and in with Simon, it's the mage, uh, with Baz, it's, it's both Fiona and, and, uh, Daphne, he, he has a, 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 a positive experience, but still like, not Daphne, sorry, his dad, who, you know, it's all that parental trauma, right? And and almost every character in the book is is kind of dealing with that in different ways. Shepard's honesty, like when he first introduces himself to everybody, it's like, and I'm from a divorced family. You know, he just is <laughs> like, la da 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 da. He he really was such a foil to like all of them in their entire world. Uh-huh. Like at the end of the story where Penny's dad is like sitting with Shepard questioning Shepard because he's so much more in tune with the magical world than the magicians are. It just mm-hmm. was so good. Uh, I had to laugh because, you know, this book did start out kind of of that Harry Potter vein and the whole concept of a chosen one and, you know, the hero and the magicians. And, and, and in this book, magic is like, it's stupid. It's just stupid. Like I was thinking about Penny using 16 spells to, to, make a chalkboard when she could have just walked down to the corner store and gotten chalkboard paint. Uh-huh. And, you know, when, when the, when this, when it, it's realized that Simon's wings can no longer be hidden by magic and they're not knowing what to do about it. And Shepard's like, Oh, this is common. Lot, you know, griffins, all kinds of animals have wings and or creatures have wings and you just tailor the clothes. And they're just like gobsmacked at that. They're completely dumbfounded that there is a solution to life's problems that, does not end at the tip of a magic wand. Uh-huh. So I really, really, I really love that. There was so much humor in that and also a lot of poignancy in that. I mean, just the the dedication of this book was don't let anyone tell you you're not magic uh-huh. uh, to completely undo the magical tropes in that way. I loved it. Same. They're all about magical eugenics and they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> They are all terrible people. Yes. No, like, um, I mean, Smith Miss Richards plot was really like, I'm going to call the, the flock and like only strong mages will survive because everybody's become, he essentially accuses the world of mages of becoming mundane. And I think the whole series, but this novel particularly, and even like Watford itself, the risk of becoming mundane. But we see what that does for Simon is the whole is this what people do thing is do you just live your life like does it become toast in bed and wiping your crumbs on the couch and like how when penny kisses shepherd she's like this is better than magic mm-hmm. you know everybody's willingness to kind of give up magic to the end kind of for the sake of love but actually for the sake of like having things that aren't dependent on what everybody else says which is essentially what the world of mages is it's it lives off the weight and words of other people and you don't really own anything so i want to ask you about that mad you talked about how this foils the old stories do you think that the prophecy do you think simon was the chosen one do you think the prophecies were fulfilled or do you think the prophecies are just a bunch of bunk and garbage um so the thing with like prophecies is like well you have the whole self-fulfilling prophecy which is what carry on with sort of like do you have like we've made the decision and so we're gonna make it true right 
But as we saw, everybody was always looking for something else to be true. They're always looking for a new answer to the problem that they can't really get rid of. So I don't think it's a matter of was Simon the chosen one. Like, you can either believe that or not, but in the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter. And I think that's the point is that it, with introducing other chosen ones and having something like Smith, Smith, Richard, where even Simon wants to believe is like, it's completely arbitrary. Like, I think prophecies are there almost like a, as a joke, um, kind of coming up. The Witcher, let me bring it up again. Like, in the series, there's that whole, the whole thing's based off a of prophecy, but in the, the Witcher Netflix, when Geralt gets told the prophecy about Renfi and, um, Siri, his response is, oh, that didn't rhyme. Everybody knows good prophecies rhyme. And sort of the way that it, prophecies are just, like, stories at this point, and we can either believe them or not. We can rewrite them or not. And anyway, the wind blows more than any of the other narratives. It, there's this phrase that keeps coming up, the old stories. I thought the only two times that it appeared was Baz's quote about, it was a Rainbow's promo quote for him where, you know, I thought we had a love that you couldn't set down or walk away away from an undying fire, like like in the old stories, but nobody told Simon Snow the old stories. And then Smith Smith Richards, when he's talking about the prophecy and the world of mages and what, um, what's his godfather's name? Evander? Um, yeah. He says the old stories, like he got, you know, the Arthurian kind of legends and like about knights and dragons and big castles and great feats of magic and sort of like the stories that the saints of the magical world were kind of built on, like Crowley and Cersei and Morgana. But I forgot when I was doing my reread, like the goats of Watford are part of the old stories. I think Shepard brings up old stories. Um, Penny, when she's telling Shepard about how, oh, there's old stories about, you know, young mages being promised off to old wizards. Like mm-hmm. everybody keeps saying old stories, old stories, old stories. Like all the things that we base our current narrative off or like the way we're reframing the world we live in and how the world of mages exists on stories and language and, you know, the power of words. And as much as it is for these kids, like how their history is repeating itself or even like intergenerational trauma or you know, we're stuck in this loop of mundanity or performativity or whatever. It's also the gift of storytelling and how every story has kind of been told already and we're just retelling endlessly because that's what being a person is. Like, that's what people do. They just keep living out stories over and over. It's both a, you know, a plot foil for the characters, but it's also the whole point is like, we can keep telling magical stories or being magic or having great loves or great heroes or prophecies. I don't know. It's just never, it's never going to end, but it's like, that's what being a person is. The other thing I'd add to that is there was a lot of focus on Penny kind of being the future of the old stories. There would be courses taught on her. There would be books written by her hundreds of years in the future. How will Penny be portrayed in the old stories? And I kind of love that, the idea that the old stories do have a place and they will continue. And the lessons that this cast of characters, Simon will be someday an old story. They will be taught about in the future. And I, I, I didn't see the old stories as necessarily a bad thing. They can be used as bad things, but they're also you know, teaching lessons, ways to, to help people learn from the past. And 
the idea of what what any any future story or any any future history about Penny will look like was very entertaining to me because she was a very entertaining character and <laughs> you know maybe maybe she'll be the one it certainly seems like it that will learn how to balance out the magical world with the normal world and learn how to appreciate it, not view it as litter and as ants and a part of the ecosystem that doesn't matter. Penny's great. She's going to figure it all out. (laughs) Get those kids on the coven quick. (laughs) Okay. Simon did not get his magic back. You are thrilled about that, Mad. Yes. Do you think he will ever get his magic back? Probably not. Or if he gets it, it won't be like magician magic. I want him to be a dragon, have dragon powers. But like, I think him being immune to magic is a form of magic. Yeah, I want to talk about that. What I, I've read it twice now, and obviously the spell did something that Simon now can deflect magic. He's not just uh, not magical. He can't be touched by magic. I, I have I have some mixed feelings about that. I would love that boy to be able to go swimming like in a public pool and not have wings and a tail. Because they, I mean, having to wear a coat out in public because it's hot. Yeah, I have thoughts. But what do you guys think about the, I mean, I get the implication of being able to deflect magic. He's so far removed from magic now that he can't do it. It can't touch him. But it was connected to this spell. And Mitali indicated that it would likely wear off. What do you guys think? Coffee, do you have any? Man, the spell did something. Yeah. He he has something something magic. Okay. And I don't know if if it's so mysterious. <laughs> but okay. Here's the thing. I'm like I'm so mixed because I don't I don't want him to get rid of his dragon parts but i want him to have some form of control like i want him to be able to live like a life like think about it like getting on an airplane Mm -hmm. especially now that the magic is deflected right or like you said swimming in in the public pool or i i feel like if if the story continues he'll keep because he i think he, he he he'll accept and he'll keep the dragon part of himself but i feel like he is potentially in the future. That spell affected something. He has magic. Okay. If he would have done the spell on a normal, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think it would have had an effect. And I don't know what caused it to have that effect. That's like the interesting thing to discuss, right? Like what, what is it acting off of? Right. But I feel like he is magic. He has magic. And and remember, like in Wayward Son too, um, the the water, the river spirit, right, said you gave too much back. There's mm-hmm. something there, and I don't know what it is, but I feel like he he does have magic, and it's just not manifesting for whatever reason. But now it's manifesting through the spell, right? But what does it mean? <laughs> I'm with you. Like I agree. I agree with Matt. I agree with you. Like it's it's very meta that Simon didn't get his magic back and not just that, but that he's able to deflect it. Like, I like that, but it's so hugely inconvenient to him as a person mm-hmm. that I just can't imagine that it ends there. I, I I don't remember which fan fiction writer it was, but one of them in one of the fan fictions, like once the holes were filled, the leftover comes back to Simon. 
because he gave, and you know, he gave too much. There's there's extra, and that extra. He is a mage. He was born a mage. He has two mage parents, two powerful mage parents. That that magic will come back to him sometime in the future, and I like that idea. That was a uh, uh, Rube Bradley. That was great, and you know, I I want that. Like that's one of those fan fiction things that I've kind of taken as my own canon now. That he will get that magic back. How would you feel about that, Mad? You're someone that's glad that he didn't. I I yeah, I like I, I love Rue. Um, I like that theory. I like magic to operate with a sort of like actual like kind of physicality to it like it has properties so like if you treat magic as matter or like something that has substance like it can't actually be destroyed or vanished so like it would make sense if it came back to um simon i'm cool with it (laughs) if he gets magic back i don't don't think that's like narratively smart but i can also see it being like theoretically smart maybe yeah, I, I, I think that's how I feel too. Like from a meta perspective, I really love it. But just from the inconvenience factor, like get that boy his magic back. Let him learn to live without it first. Let him learn to love himself without it first, but give it back to him eventually. Why? Just like, why? <laughs> I I think because he is magic. Like I, I don't want to say it's his birthright, but... Mostly for me, it's because I want him to be able to straddle both worlds easily. And it kind of broke my heart that he, that when he wanted to hide, okay, I love the fact that he didn't want them to magic him. Like that was a violation. I I love that he had those boundaries early in the story. I don't like how it feels on me. I don't want you to touch me that way. Don't, don't magic me. He hates it. Respect Simon's, you know, autonomy here. Do not magic the boy. But at the end of the story where he wants to be magicked and can't be, I, that broke my heart just as much. Like, I, he just wants to go out without wearing a coat. The world is never going to accept his wings. Society is never going to accept his wings. The few times that it did was such a relief to him. Like, I want him to keep the wings in the tail, but I want him to keep them selectively, be able to hide them when he doesn't want them. And maybe that's just too simple, but that's what I wanted for him. I think we'd like him to have everything he wants and to have kind of quote unquote, like a perfect body or like a very accessible or convenient body. I think I will say I find that reductive because I don't think, you know, not all bodies are convenient. Like I think he does. I think the wings are like what helps him straddle the world. And like, kind of like we see with Shepard, like Shepard interdimensionally straddles the world. And like the idea of like, you know, it's less that they can't be part of this. The world of mages, like, if we're looking at these characters being a part of this world, they they are magic. And, like, normals or speakers are what create magic for magicians to use, or talkers, or whatever the heck they're called in America. And then, like, Simon being not a mage, but a creature, and the sort of dichotomy between world of mages and then dark creatures like vampires... I think is like fictitious and like I feel like Simon not having magic but having the wings and tail is what lets him straddle the world versus him having the whole like the whole everything kind of yeah I would agree with that like I I see it working that way and it being more realistic I'm always always gonna 
want the happiest of happy endings, but yeah. I know that that's not realistic. But I, I, I agree with coffee. Like something, something happened with this magic thing. And I, I, I do wonder if we'll ever, if Rainbow revisits the story, I, there's a lot of questions that a lot of little topics I'd like her to touch on. I'm happy. I'm happy with what she gave us. I love that there were topics left for the meta writers. I saw that tweet from her where she felt like she's been like tying up thousands of bows and people aren't happy enough with all the bows she's tied up. Like they want more bows tied up. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely happy, but I love that she's left a things to think about and talk about and wonder about. And if they are revisited, great. If not, I trust the fan fiction community to give me satisfaction on that. Yeah, yeah, I saw that post as well. And and I'm like, I love the little nerd fucking details that she gives us because she knows we want it. Like the the history of like the pitch history, the family history, the the stupid stuff like that you know it's for us. It's so it's so fan servicey, the wand holster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a hundred percent. Like that's for the uh, for us, right? Yes. Like, there's yes. no reason to write that except for the fans. It's just so fucking good. Look, during these quarantine times, like, I've been reading so much, and a lot of it was Stephen King. And he's notorious for not being able to stick an ending. And I felt like she closed this off in such a satisfying way that I... I can see why she would be irritated. Like she did, she tied, she tied it up in such a nice way, but she also left things for people in the fandom to explore, which I thought was also really like delightful. So yeah, she did tie a lot of bows and, and it was so, so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you guys said. Like, I think one of my first things was just that I was glad she left things too. For us to play with in the sandbox. There were some open threads though. And I think one that I saw people asking about was what happened to Lucy the dog. <laughs> and that she has said Lucy is with Ginger and she doesn't know if that's permanently with Ginger or if Lucy the dog will be coming back. But Lucy the dog is fine. Living the best Lucy the dog life. Another open thread was that Simon never learned of his mother's visits. In fact, Baz later calls Simon the Rosebud Boy. I have thoughts about that. I don't know. I The crying painting was Lucy. Is that something, is that new information? Did I miss that or was that? No, it was um in the first book. Okay. I mean, this is just complete speculation. Do you think the painting is still crying or do you think the painting was crying because of that little tiny bit of life that Lucy was holding on to? Oh, I love that. I didn't even think of that. I would love for the painting to not be crying anymore. Does it bother you at all that Simon, I mean, I guess he's figured out that Lucy is his mom, but not knowing that she did visit him and that that's her picture, does that bother you or are you okay with that? I think we all wanted Simon to have a little bit more like learning about his family more or his heritage or like the story that kind of happened before he happened. but. I'm okay with it being as open as it is just as a writer. So yeah, I, I definitely wanted more from family, but of course Simon 
did find his family this time. He he found Lady Ruth and what's the what's his uncle's name? Jamie. Jamie. This is just an aside point, but you were talking about like the male role models for um Simon and Simon's mask. Like I love the fact that Jamie is like his uncle. Like that's just he he's just such an an a, a average human being, and that's like great that he's just an average human being. So I really love the introduction of Jamie. And I think it was really cute how fan fiction writers, again, handled the fact that Ruth had other children, that Lucy had a sibling, and how on the nose, even though they got the name wrong, uh, the whole concept of what Simon's found family would look like. I, I just want to applaud all the fan fiction writers because it was just so good. Wait, when did we learn about Lady Ruth? It was in Carry On, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, Lady Ruth eating cake and her um, like useless son or something like that. Like, <laughs> I forget what the line was, talking about Jamie like being a terrible magician. I could read a bunch of books about Lady Ruth. She's everything I wanted. Like, and Jamie, I love that Jamie was... You know, there's all that, all those times when Simon was like, oh, you know, I'm just bad at magic or whatever. But like, it's funny because you can see the family connection between them. Like Jamie also had like issues like, yeah, Yeah. like putting it into words. And I'm like, man, they, they had that. I would, I would love to see their relationship more in the future because they both had that in common. You know, that's like a family thing. And Mm -hmm. now he knows why, you know, he always had problems with that. Yeah, I think Jamie, not as a role model for Simon, but just as family for Simon. I mean, I just think there's so much they could do, relate to. Yeah. A shared experience. Exactly. I mean, they they are family. Now, granted, Simon made his own family long before he found them, but, but Ruth and Jamie are just bonus. They're like, they both are going to matter to him. I mean, Ruth in just the unconditional love and, you know, the grandma that loves to bake. And she's just so happy for Simon and Baz, like that complete, that family member, you know, Simon's really um, uncomfortable with people side-eyeing him because he's gay. And here grandma is just like, (gasps) look at those boys. They have each other. I'm so happy they have each other. And that's only going to get better. And then Jamie having some of the same problems and just being like, the most normal of normals, especially now also magicless, entirely magicless. Like just to know that you don't have to be the chosen one to be loved. You can be Jamie and still be loved. You can be nobody and be precious. And I really think those are lessons that Simon is going to learn from Ruth and Jamie. I think so. I enjoyed the reveals about family. Like I enjoyed what we did get of Simon finding his family. I mean, he's a boy who loves to eat. He gets a grandma who loves to cook. Uh, the pulling of N Excalibur out of the table, I thought was, I mean, Simon didn't get his magic back, but he got a sword back. And I really loved that. Like the boy needed a sword. And if he didn't, and to have a family sword uh, worked very well for me. But I thought some of the implications of family, like maybe it's just me, but fan fiction made me love Fiona more. And this book kind of pulled me back a little bit. I really struggled with Fiona in this book. There's a quote that I found where, you know, we, we, we love to villainize the mage and rightly so because, you know, what he did to Simon just, but Fiona did the same. I don't think I'd realized until now that Fiona did the same thing to Baz. 
she says to him at one point when he realizes that, you know, uh, Pippa could get her voice back. She says to him, don't try to make me feel guilty about this. We were at war. Baz says, I wasn't at war. I was at school. She says, you wanted to help. He's, no, I wanted to make you happy. I wasn't being a good soldier or a good spy. I just wanted your attention. And that was in chapter 60. And that just really, like, I don't, again, I don't, I'm not the most insightful reader, like realizing that Baz had that shared experience with Simon of, of playing soldier when he didn't want to. Baz, I guess, to me, always seemed a little more comfortable in that role than Simon did. And to find out now that that he wasn't, that he's recognizing the fact that Fiona did him dirty and, you know, the world of mages did him dirty. It was very gratifying for me, but also broke my heart. Yeah, I don't like Fiona. <laughs> She's stinky. <laughs> I liked her because of fan fiction. <laughs> That's why I try not to read fiction or fanfic when I'm writing. So I'm like, you you accidentally like internalize the characterization and then you're like, oh crap, wait, is this quote legit or is this from a fic? Um, I mean, sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes um, it doesn't. But yeah, I mean, Fiona was stinky and like bad and like, uh, and this, I don't know. I did think though that her and Nico, like, I knew they'd be together in this. I just thought they'd be, I thought it'd be, like, more plot-relevant for some reason. Yeah. I definitely thought there'd be some, like, vampire stuff, because it would have made, like, transitional sense, but okay. I wonder if originally there was supposed to be some kind of plot line, because it's not just, it's not just, it's that, too, and then it, they kept mentioning Jamie being kidnapped by vampires and like why why mm -hmm. did that keep coming up i feel like that might have been like a discarded story thread at some point or maybe it ties into the beginning of the book because in wayward son penny was making this huge deal about something happening at wofford and then it turned out to be much ado about nothing right so i wonder if that was something that was discard discarded it might have been because even the whole point about um, Wayward Son, like, should we report about the fact that there are the new, what, Next Love? Was it Next Love? No. What was it called? Now Next. Now Next? Correct. Now Next. Okay. Yeah. Because they're like, should we report about Now Next? Should we, what should we do about this? You know, Las Vegas is being run by Vampire King and the decision was nothing. We should do nothing about it. So it just wasn't important to the story. I guess, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Fiona disappointed me. The book made me love Daphne more, even though Daphne was the one that, you know, fell for the cult. The scene where she does go back to her husband and the way Malcolm and Daphne's relationship was there, you know, Malcolm very happy not to talk about it, but still treating her with all the love and the tenderness and absolute devotion that Malcolm felt for her. It reminded me too of just what a good role model Baz mm -hmm. has for love, both in Daphne. I mean, Malcolm obviously was not fit to parent him. Fiona jumped in, not fit to parent him. But the tenderness he showed to Daphne, uh, calling her mom and just, you know, remarking on how his father treated her. I, I really love that. That I just, I get all gooey thinking about it. Yeah, I love her. I love Daphne. I do too. She was so good in this book. 
And it's not even just in this book, right? Because in Wayward Son, you hear the story about how she taught Baz how to drive. And like in the, in the first book, you know, he, he you could tell that that he he accepts her as his mother, as his, his new his new mother, his stepmother. And you could always tell that she had like a, a good heart, even from the first book, right? And maybe the only really good thing Fiona did for Baz was to let him know to let the dead go and focus on the living. And that would mean focusing less on what his mom would think and more on what Daphne would think or more on just appreciating the people that he has in his life. So I will give Fiona credit for that one. Yes, Fiona does love him in her way. I know. She's just so stinky. She's a hot mess. <laughs> you know, she's a terrible person. But there's love there, kind of. There is love there, but it's yeah. not good enough. It's not a good enough love. She's she's flawed, and and so his dad is also heavily flawed, right? Yes. Okay. Anything else about family, Daphne, Fiona, Malcolm? Any of that? Okay. Does does it, did this bother you? Like, who? Okay. So everybody's always talking about Natasha, and she married down. Who is she supposed to marry? Like, who is like worthy? <laughs> They never say like what is like an other like high like what what who was just you know who what what family would be worthy you know well there is no family worthy of the pitches that's exactly yeah, exactly <laughs> but did you find a source for that quote about how Natasha might have killed Bass it was either on her Twitter which is gone now and but I think it was put on Tumblr again someone hmm. re put it on Tumblr like they screen capped it and put it there. But yeah, that's dark, man. I'm like, Rainbow, why why do you do this to us? Yeah, that's one of those where I would take death of the author over the word of the author. Like I would definitely. She doesn't say it in this book, but she in a way like implies it at the end when Baz is with Daphne. True, true. You know, he, you know, because we we put these people on a pedestal, but like, you know, Natasha, as much as she's like, you know, kind of like worshipped by everybody as like this um, incredible magician, she probably also had her own flaws, right? After you told me that quote, I did, and I read um, on my reread, I did notice that it was hinted at that Natasha might not have accepted Baz. And if that's the case, you know, I think you're right. I think, you know, it's it's deliberately there. And Baz maybe even has, you know, he's always felt that way. And of course we wanted to say, no, no, honey, that's not true. She'd love you right? regardless. But ultimately it doesn't matter. She's gone and he is yeah. loved regardless by Fiona, by Simon, by Lady Ruth, by his dad, by Daphne. I mean, these people adore him. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to talk more about Agatha and Neve and a few miscellaneous things that caught our attention. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. I didn't want to end the podcast without 
touching on the other story that was happening, that with Agatha and Neve. And I'm going to be honest and say that this was part of the story that I, I kind of, I, I can you love something and not love it at the same time? Matt, I really loved the meta. You wrote just a small, a small post about how Agatha escaped Simon, meaning, you know, escaped probably dying by association from him and how she looked at Lucy as somebody who got to run away. I don't know. There's just, there's a lot of poignancy there, but at the same time, I wanted Agatha to run away. I didn't want Agatha back in the magical world. And now she's not just back in it. She's protecting it. I, I'm kind of there with you. I, I mean, a lot of it's like, <laughs> jokingly, I'm like, Agatha's legally allowed to kill people now and also burn down Watford. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she felt so validated towards the end of Wayward Sun, like, and we see that again at the beginning of Anyway the Wind Blows with Ashes to Ashes, Dust to Dust, and like, her being committed to never again, you know, being the victim or being used as a, essentially a plot device or a, kind of like a gambit or whatever. And yeah, Ab tells her to run and I'm, I'm a little bummed that she kind of gets written into this role because I think she wanted to be written out of it. I had had for my, my like can and just rewrite to a light from out of the way that light within ironically, you know, when a uh, headmistress Bunce is like talking to Penny and she is like, you run into danger. Like you can't resist like, a bad idea. I actually had it planned, and I will write it, that Agatha says that to Penny during this, like, kind of dramatic moment, and Agatha walks away from Penny and Baz and Simon, and, like, she's like, I'm not doing it again. I mean, that's canon. That is exactly Agatha. I was texting my friends, I was like, uh. <laughs> uh Yeah, I mean, it, it, depending on who you talk to, I mean, I really understood Agatha, like, being basically a prop and like being this like you know prize of what does she say to simon carry on i want to be your right now but like she doesn't want to be a prize to be won at the end of whatever mm-hmm. and and all like like simon was anticipating what do you say something in his teeth into me before i even got as far as you know living a life past the next couple of years and like agatha's destiny was either to be a widow or to die at the bottom of a well mm-hmm I'm glad she got away from Simon because, like, she and Lucy are foils to, like, what it is to be sort of overwhelmed by men in power or men with power. I mean, no matter how you slice it, that's really what was going on. Coffee, you mentioned Rainbow not being comfortable writing Agatha. That's not something I'd seen before. So before Anyway the Wind Blows came out, she had these notes added to Goodreads for both the first book and the second book. And she kind of went through various points that she kind of wanted to talk about. So Rainbow writes, she writes, Agatha was absolutely the most difficult character for me to write. Part of it is her beauty, I think. It's hard for me to imagine moving through the world as she does, knowing that most people find her attractive. But also, she's sort of disaffected with magic. And that's hard for me to imagine, too. I originally wasn't going to involve Agatha in the ending of this book, but my literary agent, so she's talking about carry on here. My literary agent had taken a liking to her and kept saying, where's Agatha? I realized that I was dropping the character because I was avoiding the work of figuring her out. I rewrote this chapter and Agatha's role in the climax so many times I had to find my way into her the ways that we were alike. 
When it was time to write Wayward Son, once again, I tried to sideline Agatha. She was going to be in California, minding her own business. And again, my agent was like, where is Agatha? The irony, I think this is irony, is that Agatha became hugely important to the trilogy and ended up getting some of my best lines. I can't even imagine any way the wind blows without Agatha. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, trying to decide, I'm trying to decide if I can imagine any way the wind blows without Agatha. I can rip. <laughs> I yeah. mean, but, but she she does at certain points have a really important role. Like when Mhm. Mm like in the beginning of the book. In the beginning of the book when Simon is having about to have the surgery, right? And she is kind of there and she is comforting him and also she brings up that story about that time that he di he didn't uh give up fighting the what was it the pain deer <laughs> and um that's what kind of prompts him to realize that you know he 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 never did give up but you know he was giving up on Baz and the reason that he should that he he left the surgery was because of that conversation that they were all having about that pain deer attack and him never giving up. And that's what kind of prompted him to kind of go to Baz and realize that he was giving up in that situation, right? I still love that it took exactly 13 hours for Simon to do an about face on that one. Simon. Like, 13 hours, buddy. Break up. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm glad Agatha's there, but she had to be there. Agatha is kind of like the anti, the anti Simon, right? Because Simon was like running headfirst into that role. And Agatha's like, fuck this. I don't want it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't like magic. I don't care about magic. I don't care about this like destiny. I don't want any of it. Right. And, and I think in, in a way, like, I get, I get the idea of her going to California, but she wasn't happy in California either. No, right? True, true. She wasn't, and and like in the end, kind of like Ev. Ev was like, you know, she wasn't. Yes, she was at Watford. Yes, she had that role of of the goat herd, but she was off. She was doing her own thing, you know. But it feels like at like Ebb in the first two books, I loved Ebb, but mm -hmm. it felt very much like there was no place for Ebb. So Natasha made a place like, okay, well, you can just stay here and do, and do this. What's the word? Inconsequential task of hurting the goats. Hurting like, the goats. You'll be like to tuck her, tuck Ebb away somewhere where Ebb can be safe and simple and not matter. And I know that's not, I mean, that's not the case now. Now we find out that the goats are critical. Like it, that's a big job. That's Ebb was doing, you know, the real work. But like, even knowing that Ebb, at in at the end of the day had a choice right she could have chosen to be a part of the world of mages she didn't she wanted to be kind of out because of what happened with her brother right and agatha too kind of makes a similar choice she 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 is part of that world it, it, no matter how far she runs away from it that's just who who she is right you you can't you can't run away from yourself and she kind of found a balance where she is not involved, but she has purpose in her life that she 
chose for herself, right? Because she could have run away to America or somewhere else, right? She could have uh, like found like a, a more like traditional role in the world of mages, maybe becoming a vet at her dad's clinic or whatever. But she decided to go and and kind of choose her own destiny. She she felt it was important and she decided to kind of find her own path. Eb seemed discarded. I wanted Agatha to discard herself and not be discarded. But I don't think she is discarded. Like Eb was no. discarded because she was so lost in grief over her brother, you know, but Agatha doesn't have that, you know, so she is, instead of being discarded, she found freedom through it in a way. Like, you know, Agatha has that barn all set up. She's got a nice shower, all the all the luxuries that Eb didn't want. You know, Agatha wants that stuff. Mm-hmm. So she has it set up in her own way, I'm sure. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it was established that she was interested in animals, veterinarians. That was established in an earlier book. It's and so, such a throwaway line. Though. I know. But <laughs> was it? I feel bad too because I did like Neve's character quite a bit. Yeah. But then I felt a little betrayed by Neve as well. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I really thought that Neve was above the usual MO with Agatha that she was not somebody that was like swayed by, I, I don't know. Neve just seemed very removed from it all. And and then towards the end, it's like, oh, the beef with Simon is jealousy. I think, I think it was both though. Cause I think she was over like the drama of what she thought of as like their clique, you know? And she's like, oh, these people, she was so over it. Right. And, and she, she was, a bit jealous of Agatha in a way, right? Like mm-hmm. she was the the golden girl in quotation marks, right? The chosen ones. Well, and Agatha not even remembering her, like that just was like, ouch. It is ouch. It is ouch. You know, and I loved Neve's perspective. Mm-hmm. I loved seeing it from like the eyes of an outsider who wasn't involved in in all the dramatics. I thought it was just really kind of like fresh. I like that she's maybe a bit possibly like neurodivergent. I love the way that she kind of like looks at the world and the way she interacts with the other characters. I thought that was really great. It was cute that Baz is the person who very clearly remembered Neve, which mm-hmm. I thought was really nice. Whether I enjoyed the storyline or not, I loved how Rainbow wrote Neve, like the frowns and yeah. how Agatha was constantly describing the facial expressions. And I got sense a sense of Neve as a person. Yes. That I really appreciated that. And of course, I think one of the best lines in the story was Baz referring to Neve as the Irish girl, Snow's veterinarian in chapter 52. Like that <laughs> I, I literally laughed out loud. It was a lot of humor there. I like how Neve and Jamie are like the only ones that know about the Watford goats. It was an old story's fail, the fact that it was an uh-huh. old story and everybody <laughs> forgot. I thought it had to do with, like, once the mage took power, he, like, eliminated certain narratives from the education oh. of Lockford. So, like, you have a whole generational gap of stories that didn't get told in the same way he removed a lot of books. Mm, that's a good point. I hate to ever speak critically of something because I know that somewhere else is somebody that really identifies with this and love it. But I'm going to throw shade on the fan fiction community again because like I was headcanning Agatha as like totally asexual and forever alone, but in the best possible way. But hold on, because in the books, there's a lot to support that. 
Yeah, there was. I mean, I think about her relationship with Ginger where uh-huh. she thinks about it and then not. And then with um, Brayden, mm-hmm. thinks about it and then not. Like, oh, the attention is nice, but I'm not into it. And with with Ginger, it was like, mm, maybe, but. Mm. Knowing like Rao's own kind of comments on her sexuality and like the same reason why she didn't have Simon really like express linear textbook sexuality i think she was doing the same thing with agatha you know it's neat when you know but like sometimes you just gotta meet the right person and like i think either interpretation of her like if fans want to run earth ace or arrow or whatever they want or you know oh just give her a big butch you know <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> do we want to talk about simon and agatha having been intimate that was a surprise to a lot of people because it contradicted something earlier in the story what did it contradict? Okay, people say it contradicted the kiss on the forehead thing, but I think that's kind of overlooking the point of that line was that he the the line like implies that he's never had a kiss besides something sexual, right? So this is like a, a, a like a familial kind of kiss that he receives from the ghost. So like if you read it like very very literally because she says oh i i kissed each of his moles or whatever but i don't think it crosses out the line from before in the first book i also don't i interpreted the line as like a metaphor so Mm -hmm. and i don't mind it it just was a shock it was you know like taking a sip of orange juice and then you realize it's coke and you don't hate it you just it takes you off guard so the fact that they did have like perfunctory relationship but one that neither was really into it's kind of sad it is but i do think they were important to each other regardless of of the relationship being like this just agatha's realization about not even being the third wheel like being this point of interference to keep them from getting to each other and just what a waste her high school years were yeah okay enough with agatha and neve unless you guys have anything um, so there was so few times that the characters interact as a group. And I love the times that that happened, including the times where they met up at Wadford. I thought that was really great. Oh, yeah. Did you guys see the meme? It's my favorite. <laughs> Did you guys watch Shit's Creek? Oh, I saw the first season a long time ago. I have to catch up. Matt, did you watch Shit's Creek? I watched some of the first season. I know what meme you're about to say. I don't think you even need to have seen it to appreciate the meme of like Baz sitting in a field doing absolutely nothing to help this endeavor of herding goats. Because the very last thing, I mean, Baz is from a family of farmers on his dad's side, but <laughs> just not going to mess up his clothes by chasing after goats. And his repeated thing about good instincts, anytime an animal gets mm-hmm. too close to him, <laughs> Rainbow's such a good writer. Those little <laughs> details, Yeah. so in the end the the groups were very much splintered off like it was three separate stories that that had random points of connection it was nice to see penny shine like outside of the two of them but i think because my investment is with the two of them i don't want to say i viewed it as a distraction from the main story because it was still really good and interesting i just felt like as much as i loved penny shepherd the politics of the magical world Agatha and Neve, all it's just like they're not Simon and Baz. So automatically, like I lose a little bit of interest there. But it was so good. I liked Penny getting this the chance to shine 
on her own. I think she needed that. And I like the storyline separate, but I wanted to see just a little more interaction with everybody because I think she does so good at, um, like Raul does such good ensemble dialogue. And I love when they're bouncing back and forth off of each other. And I, I, I know like, you know, it's so hard, like where would you put it, right? Be- just because of the way that the story is built, but damn, mm-hmm. if she makes another book, I want so much ensemble dial- dialogue. Penny was the sidekick for Simon. And, you know, you kind of view Penny as the one that's constantly there to like protect Simon, help Simon. And mm-hmm. this book really capitalizing on the idea that no, Penny's the one causing the trouble. Like this, this, that was a <laughs> real shift for me. She wasn't causing the trouble. Like <laughs> they were all kids and they were all doing like what they needed to do. Like, I don't like, I don't like Penny's mom assuming that like, okay, she, she does chase after trouble a little bit, but Right. There's always reason. <laughs> There's always a good reason, okay? And Penny's instincts are good. And maybe it was really good, a good decision to to isolate the characters so we can appreciate them for who they are without each other. And I did learn a lot about Penny in this one. Stuff I didn't like, stuff I did like. But yeah, man, she and Shepard were just made for each other. I could read a whole series of books about them, I think, if they were to go back to America and as Penny tries to unravel all the deals for his children that he's made, because I would expect Penny's probably somebody who would like a traditional family. Oh, I also love, like, Crime Lord Penny. Yes. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of my fics, I usually have Simon being like, dude, Penny's the troublemaker between this. I, mm-hmm. I, I do my thing. And Baz is totally a goody-two-shoes for the whole series. He's like a little nerd. Penny's the real loose cannon. Yes. One other character I wanted to mention was the storyline with Pippa, which I, I'm really glad that one came back. I think I had accepted the explanation that it would fade, or maybe I wanted to accept that, but it turns out it didn't. And again, like I think the two moments I was most tense in the book was the first time Baz and Chiman tried to be intimate, and then Baz's realization that Pippa was irrevocably hurt by what he had done in his attempt to fix it. I thought the Pippa return was nice and poignant because you have this figure that was sort of silenced and like literally the victim is made silent and she couldn't even cry for help and that's like what guts pass and then kind of like the truth will set you free like she's finally able to be the one to like vocalize the lies and like she's she's a metaphor more than a character but it served its purpose. For me, it was like completely unexpected. And and then this girl shows up and the girl, like she's she's like a quiet girl. I'm like, oh no. And then you keep seeing him go back to it. Like, oh, who's that girl? And you're like, oh no. And, and you know who the girl is. And you're like, when's he going to find out? I and didn't then- <laughs> know who the girl is. I'm glad you did. Like, I'm just like, do, 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 do. I was I'm like, glad oh you my it God. Out. And I'm like, when is he going to notice? And then at one point, okay, so they're at the meeting and he's like, oh, look, it's uh, it's Agatha's roommate. And I'm like, did I miss a chapter and I had to go back? And then a few lines later, he's like, wait a minute, Agatha's roommate. And I'm like, okay, so they didn't mention it earlier. Mm-hmm. We talked about it a bit earlier about like these these people, like the mage and uh, 
Fiona kind of like making these kids like, and and that's maybe part of the reason why Baz and Simon weren't able to have like that roommate relationship, the impossible romantic relationship earlier, right? Because they had been forced into these like child soldier roles. And it was good to see that Baz could have kind of like a self-redemption arc. It's, it's, you know, he, he had, a choice in it, but they wanted to please those those parental figures, right? Ugh, those parental figures. But but you know, it, it was good to see him at least try to make some kind of amends. And 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 like we mentioned before too, that was the second time in the book where he's you know willing to give up magic, which is such an important part of his life, right? He's he's willingly giving his wand away to Pippa. Yeah. And he's also willing to accept the punishment for what he did at the end of the book. He's like, let's go to the coven. You know, I, I, I'm I'm ready to take responsibility, right? It was also good because it was like, this was when Baz went solo in the book. I was expecting more of the book to be them going solo as they're trying to work out their feelings. But mm-hmm. it wasn't until two thirds of the way through the book that they each kind of go to deal with their own stuff. And with him, it was with Pippa. And with Simon, it was the whole chosen one thing, going to see, spending time alone with Smith, Smith Richards. I will never say that name without like stumbling. I can't. And it it was kind of interesting because like, again, going back to Wayward Son, it's so funny because people say Wayward Son has no connection to this book, uh, like, or the trilogy, but like Wayward Son, there's a lot, there is a lot of connection, right? Because in Wayward Son, like Baz was using like magic, Baz was kind of like the badass. And in this book, Penny is doing everything right she's like casting spells left and right she's on a crime spree Mm -hmm. (laughs) and baz is the one who is not using magic or having trouble using magic uh and it was really it was kind of interesting to see that flip in between the two books i agree okay just a few more questions for my own curiosity coffee what was your favorite quote from the book i struggled with this so much there's so many and I love I love them all, but um, uh, I especially loved "I can touch you less gently, but I won't love you less kindly." I think that one's gonna become very familiar with tattoo artists throughout the country. <laughs> like that was the line, and the other one I saw was like, "If you can't be gay at IKEA, where can you be?" Which I think <laughs> those two are unforgettable. There's so many good lines. There's so many. We're not made of pieces that come apart. And I already said mine was, um, I'm hard to hurt. No, you're hard to kill. Oh, my God. What about this one? He noses at my ear softly. There's butter on these ham sandwiches. I thought you liked them that way. He nips at me. I do. Then he pulls back, still smiling. What a ridiculous creature. Happy that I put butter on his sandwich as if I wouldn't make the world spin backwards if I thought he'd like it better that way it's just I love I love her writing you know what that might be another one that ends up in the tattoo parlors (laughs) (laughs) and what about your favorite spell because that's one thing I think about this series of books that added to the charm was the fact that the spells are all like pop culture yeah, it's always so interesting to see. I love, I love, I love that you, it's language, right? It's such an interesting idea. Okay, of course, Pacey's, 
Yeet bringing down the wall in the classroom. Yeet. (laughs) (laughs) Especially having like a teenage child. I'm like, of course, of course, right? Someone would do that. And what about you? Oh, I, I, I mean, I've loved like trying to ferret out the song lyrics. Like that's been really fun for me. What I've been wondering about is like, is any way the wind blows a spell? And if it is a spell, what would it do? <gasps> what would it do? I wonder. There's probably a fanfic about this. I, if not, there will be. Like <laughs> I probably can go to AO3 and find it. I just, I, I, I have really enjoyed that clever aspect. And I think two of the fan fiction writers as well, when they've come up with their own spells. Yes. And it's, it's interesting to see how like some spells like gain traction and it's like, it's like, of course, this is a spell for this. And you see that in various fics. And uh, how fandom makes their own canon, which I love. Yeah. I found the quote from Vanity Fair. And I think this is the, the real, what everyone's wondering right now. Uh, Rainbow says, I'm super done with Simon and Baz at the moment. I have written so many words and pages about them. But I would never say I'm never going to write about them again. I think it's likely that I might revisit them someday, but this story is over. If I were to come back to them, it won't pick up the next day. And that's from a very recent Vanity Fair interview. So my question for both of you, if there is going to be more in the series, what would you want to see? I want something unexpected. Of course, I want more Simon and Baz. I want Watford Mysteries. I want... I want whatever she'll give us about the world, about like the world of mages, about those different dimensions. I want, I, I want just more. <laughs> and I, I hope that we get it one day. If we don't, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm completely happy with how it ended, you know, and it can live on in our imaginations. But I feel like whatever she does give us will be unexpected. Was it you or somebody else who suggested maybe the next novel focusing on the siblings, Mordelia and It was me. I okay. I I love it. I love it so much. And you know, I kind of I I want to see everyone. Like I love how she I I hadn't seen that quote of her in Vanity Fair, but yeah, I, it would be interesting to see them like more in their their roles in in the world, right? Whether they become involved in in politics, like in the Coven or at Watford, or, you know, what adventures Penny and and Shepard have, maybe that, you know, it it would make sense, right? Because like, from a narrative standpoint, you don't want to have them like, in different countries, right? While the story is going on, it would be kind of difficult for the story to come together. But yeah, like maybe Penny and Shep go on all these adventures. Wouldn't it be great? Okay. So she does the <laughs> writing for uh, that Marvel comic, Runaways, right? Wouldn't I did it be not great? know this. I did not know this. Tell me about this. Oh, okay. So there's a, a Marvel comic called Runaways and she does the writing for mm. it right now. I think it's ending, unfortunately, but I know that she had a run on as the writer for that series. And wouldn't it be so great to have like a comic book series of like Shep and Penny's adventures, like undoing like all the, all the damage that that Shep has done, all the deals he's made. It would be so freaking fun. 
Yeah, I think that's kind of where I'm thinking for the next book. Now, as much as I love Baz and Simon, I, I'm done with their trauma. I, I'm curious about them. I want them to have their happily ever after. For them to be the focus of the next book means introducing trauma that I don't want them to have. So I'm fine with them. Let's just leave them alone. You know, let answer a few of my questions, but a next series focused on maybe Penny and Shepard's wedding and having to undo the curses and having to deal with the politics of the magical world and breaking the rules and bringing more Delia and having Simon and Baz there in the background where we get like, you know, their presence, things to smile about, bits of them, their interaction with Penny, and, but not the trauma. I'm, I do not want those boys having any more trauma. Penny can handle a little more trauma. Penny's earned it. Like Penny's been awful with her scam running. And I mean, her smackdown has not yet begun. Like, she's starting <laughs> to realize the magical world is wrong and that her family is a part of what's wrong. And Shepard has changed the game entirely. And now like, let's see the fallout from that. That's what I want. I want the fallout. But I think all of them have realized that, right? And I do, I do want Simon and Baz to be at the center. I don't think it necessarily has to, especially if it takes place further into the future. I, I don't think it has to like revolve solely around trauma. I think it, it can be like a, a different thread that we follow. Is there plot without trauma? Maybe there, there is. You can have plot with, you can have different, different problems pop up, you know? That's true. That's true. And what about you, Mad? Have you seen stuff with like the multiple dimensions that exist? We know that the Bunces are married in multiple dimensions. We have, you know, demons that aren't traditional demons. Or like you guys said, Penny and Shepard, like out in America working with creatures or more stuff with sort of how the dark creatures are, you know, like who decided that they're dark creatures. Like, what does that mean? So just sort of, I think, expanding on the magical world and less like less Watford, more big picture. Mm-hmm. And during the break, Coffee, you were telling me about um, a podcast that you've been enjoying that's related to the series. Okay, I love it. It's Escape from Reality, and it's done by uh, these two hosts, Lark Malachi Gray and Jesse Blunt. And they are fantastic. And they do like a chapter, like like a few chapters at a time read through. So they're still going through the first book. So if you want to relive the books again, I really, really recommend that you follow that podcast. It's super fun. The hosts are great. Um, they have uh, their main account, all their social media is under the Gaily Prophet, which is the podcast that they originally started with doing like analysis of like the Harry Potter books. Mm. And um, it's so, so fun. Check it out. And their website is hashtag ruthless.com. So are they just reading it or they're actually talking about it and reading it? It's discussion. So they'll do a few chapters at a time. They'll talk about like magical politics, the sexy stuff in the story. They'll talk about like all these different topics uh, within the podcast for for those chapters that they cover. And they're only on book one. They're only on book one. So it's still going on for like a while. All right, so I so drop me that link, and I will drop the link in our show notes. And I'm also going to include all the meta that we've touched on in our show notes because a lot of what my outline here was people's thoughts that I've read on Tumblr, or just things that I think are interesting. All right, well, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Coffee, always a delight. Loved having you. Thank you for staying up till two o'clock in the morning to record with me. Oh, anytime. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And Mad too. 
what a great opportunity to get to talk to you after all this time. You were a fantastic guest. I'm I'm just so delighted to hear your thoughts and feelings on the series. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you after so many years and so at many length. I'm inspired to like find more books to talk about because this has been so much fun for me. Thank you both so much. I'd like to thank our Patreons, Kenny, Taryn, Simon, Silerana, Demonic Jesus, Linduin, Firelord Sika, Aaron will win in chapter 140, and Flock Forester is the best character in the manga. Thank you so much for your support. We do currently have the Patreon on hold until we decide a direction that we're going on. I will say that I think like the name of our podcast now could be Anyway, The Wind Blows, because I feel like we're just going <laughs> in all the different directions at this point. And maybe it'll stay this way. Maybe we'll continue just to talk about media that we enjoy, because uh, there sure is plenty of that to talk about. So I think we're done. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. Thanks again to my guests. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. did it like this is there was like no place for this but like okay do you think it's interesting that in every book she's had some element of body horror yes i think mad would agree with you i love it i absolutely love it and at this book in this book i was like oh she's not doing it there's no body horror element and then at the end with pippa and the the like the spider web uh spell like uh what a tangled web we weave there we like, go. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs>